You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. My family didn't often take vacations, but when my dad was working in the oil fields near Pinedale, Wyoming, we did make a single trip to Yellowstone a few hours north. I was maybe four or five years old, impressionable. I remember old faithful geyser, sure, and getting a trinket at the gift shop. But what I remember the most was seeing a naked human footprint on the geologic features next to a sign that said, don't leave the sidewalk or you'll be sorry something to that effect. My parents didn't explain that this was a ploy by the Park Service to discourage people from abusing the delicate features. So in my mind, someone had sunk into those burbling waters and disappeared forever. Yellowstone could swallow you whole. That was my takeaway. Wild places could swallow you whole. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. This time on the Modern West, we're going to go back in time to an early expedition to visit Yellowstone to hear European ideas about wilderness that some well-to-do gentlemen brought with them and how those contrasted with the party's Native American guides who considered Yellowstone home. Our storyteller is Noah Greenspan. Regular listeners probably recognize that name. She's the show's assistant producer. Noah, take it away. There's something so enduring about a wilderness tale. From the Virginian, the 1903 novel that chronicled a timid Easterner's journey into frontier Wyoming to Into the Wild, the true story of a college graduate who went looking for enlightenment in the West. Stories like these seem to be retold again and again. Wilderness tales tap into a desire to escape society and maybe even our former selves. And one thing a lot of these stories have in common, they're from the perspective of outsiders, people who don't live near the dramatic landscapes that they imagine will transform them. A couple years ago, I had the chance to study a real-life wilderness tale, a photo journal that documented an 1896 hunting expedition into Yellowstone National Park. At the time, I was taking a class in Princeton's Western Americana archives, 
a vast collection which contains diaries, daguerreotypes, and advertisements spanning hundreds of years of history. That collection, if nothing else, suggests one thing. Easterners are fascinated by the land west of us. The author of this photo journal, John Henry Purdy, was an Easterner, too. And he was thrilled by the idea of Western wilderness. At one point, he writes with awe about a politician who left behind his career in New York to live in Yellowstone. His house is situated on the hillside overlooking the lake, with the grand and rugged peaks of the Teton Mountains rising from the opposite shore. He fled in disgust from the east and daily contact with things he loathed. Here is no pride of birth nor vain tradition, but each hardy settler is entirely willing that his glorious past and high-sounding patronymic be forgotten. For Purdy, there's something enticing about leaving his past behind and embracing the rugged in the West. I was excited for him and his group of half a dozen friends who set off for Northwest Wyoming that September. But as I kept reading the journal, and as I learned more about Yellowstone's history, contradictions in his conception of wilderness began to emerge. Even today, I, I refuse to go to national parks. Wyoming and that whole region was long known for trying to make sure that no Native American would come in to hunt or even reside in that area. That's Arthur Shortball. He's the great-grandson of Grant Shortball, an Oglala Lakota man who, along with Baptiste Little Bat Garnier and two dozen members of the 9th Cavalry, helped guide Purdy's group of friends around the park. But while Native Americans were being used for their guiding and hunting services, they were also being violently excluded from traveling in Yellowstone, land that some communities had lived in and taken care of for over 10,000 years. The notion of wilderness as empty, a place to escape to, it wasn't true. And it's a notion that, 150 years after Yellowstone's establishment, reporter Taylor Stagner says she wants to dispel. As Native people, we are part of the land. The land is part of us. That's a big part of Indigenous epistemological thought process. Land management, it forgets that. But as Purdy prepared to set off on his wilderness adventure... He took no thought of the indigenous perspective on the place he planned to visit. And that wasn't accidental. The notion of wilderness as devoid of human presence had been carefully marketed to the American public. Saturday, September 12th, left Shelburne, Vermont by special train, consisting of private car Ellesmere, one stateroom car, one combination baggage and sleeping car, and a horse car. From the first pages of Purdy's journal, one contradiction in his idea of wilderness is already clear. Despite claiming to want a rugged experience where he could forget his past, he was traveling in style. Old newspaper clippings tell us Purdy was a lawyer and a New York socialite. In fact, the whole idea for the trip was created by a member of the social elite. Purdy and his wife were close friends with William Seward Webb, who originated and planned the expedition and exerted himself unsparingly for the comfort and pleasure of his guests. Webb, the son-in-law of a Vanderbilt, was a railroad magnate. He was responsible for the creation of the St. Lawrence and Adirondack Railway, which opened up New York's Adirondack Mountains to tourists. 
At one point, he privately owned almost 190,000 acres of forest. Webb was enamored with American wilderness. In the spring of 1889, he traveled with family and friends, including Purdy, from New York to Southern California. Webb wrote with awe about the landscape. The journey will cover the most interesting portion of our country, a stretch of territory that's not only the pride of every native of the United States, but the subject of never-ceasing wonder on the part of the countless number of educated foreigners who come to our shores. Traveling the wilderness in comfort was Webb's MO. He liked to look at it out the window, not necessarily brave its dangers. I conceived the idea of organizing a private train for the party. It was to be entirely independent of timetables, starting when we wished and running at any speed we might elect. And so, in September 1896, in search of another wilderness experience, Webb, Purdy, and their all-male group of friends set out for a trip to Yellowstone. The luxurious private train cars were downplayed in the press, like in one wonderstruck New York Journal article. The route planned, in some cases, will lead far from railroads or settlements in which no supplies other than the coarsest can be secured. And the guests have been warned that they must start prepared to rough it for days at a time. With private cars that ran on their own schedule, it doesn't seem like the guests were exactly roughing it. Even Purdy jokes in the journal that right after starting out, the group's biggest problem was that his friend forgot his special bullets at home. Soon after starting, the entire party was thrown into a state of consternation on discovering that George Bird's express cartridges were left behind. A proposition to return and give up the whole trip was bravely voted down, however, and we sped on our way. But that New York Journal article makes it clear. There was something about the idea of a rugged wilderness that appealed to Americans at the time. I reach out to Chris Majok to understand why. Chris is an environmental historian based in Pennsylvania who's written a book about the establishment of Yellowstone. It's obvious that Chris has a deep love of the park, and he tells me that the region has interested him since he was a kid. 1972, my dad, who had just read D. Brown's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee and was really fascinated with the story of Native Americans in the West, took us all to Yellowstone. And I mean, really from that moment, I just became infatuated and fell deeply in love, a kind of lifelong love affair with the West and with Yellowstone. Chris says to understand Purdy and Webb's relationship with wilderness in the 1890s, we need to go back in time a little. Back to the early 19th century, when American romantic writers and artists began seeing nature as a space for spiritual and moral renewal. Think Thoreau, Emerson, William Cullen Bryant. Nature was increasingly understood by the poets, writers, artists from the Hudson River School. You know, this is the face of God. This is as close as we can get on earth to God. The forests of the Catskills and of the Adirondacks, where God's cathedrals, all of that is slowly cultivating over the course of the 1820s, 30s, 40s in the East. It was a movement that began in the East, but Chris says it didn't stay there. As Americans are moving further and further into the West, both photographers like Carlton Watkins and the great painter Albert Bierstadt, who had first you know, been painting these grand, sublime, majestic landscapes in the East, and now painting the westward story in the Oregon Trail, and now in California, and kind of glorifying, romanticizing that story. 
The other emerging force driving the American desire for wilderness was less spiritual. It was a desire to feel like a man. That was especially true by the 1890s when Purdy and Webb were traveling. In 1893, Frederick Jackson Turner had delivered his famous frontier thesis, which declared that there was no frontier left to conquer in America. Without a frontier, Turner suggested, the future of the white American man was in doubt. By the 1890s, I mean, it's becoming urbanized. Oh, my God, there's canned food that is coming, you know, just around the corner. The kind of softening, and not in a good way, the domesticating of man and manhood, the loss of one's manhood. This is a grave concern. Chris says there's a contradiction in all of this. On one hand, nature had become exalted as a space to get in touch with the spiritual, to get in touch with the masculine. But on the other hand... You have the overriding project of America in the 19th century, which is development and exploitation of nature and manifest destiny as it comes to be described. He points to 1872 as an example the year Yellowstone was established as America's first national park. It's always really struck me the irony of 1872. We get the signing by President Grant establishing the park. That's the same year we get the General Mining Act, which is one of the most notoriously awful, both from an environmental perspective and from a fiscal perspective, laws ever passed. The General Mining Act allowed any American citizen over 18 to mine for gold, silver, and other minerals on federal land, and cash in on the profits. It opened the door for corporations to strip the land, at little cost to themselves. And, like the more well-known Homestead Act, it encouraged settlers to push west. Chris says that at first glance, it's baffling to think that Yellowstone could have been established the same year. How could that have happened in the middle of this enormous project of environmental capture? The answer that he proposes might seem like a jarring one. The argument that I made was that these were part of the same project. That's right. Chris proposes that the creation of national parks and the expansion of strip mining come from the same impulse. There's a story that used to be told about Yellowstone's creation. It takes place on yet another expedition out west. In 1870, the Washburn Doan expedition was exploring the grounds that would become the park. The party included about a dozen politicians, military men, and businessmen making their fortune out west. On the last night of the trip, they sat around a campfire discussing the future of the land they'd been scouting. Members of the party were sort of musing about the possibility of privately taking ownership, putting up a hotel and cashing in on the place. And then in the middle of this discussion, one member offered the suggestion, no, that's not what should happen here. This should become a pleasuring ground for the benefit of everybody. The only problem? The story wasn't true. 
Chris says that the campfire tale was first articulated 30 years after it supposedly took place. Yellowstone was established not from a spontaneous epiphany about preserving the park for the good of the public, but rather from a calculated effort by the Northern Pacific Railroad. In 1864, the Northern Pacific had received the largest land grant in American history, over 40 million acres to build a railroad across the American Northwest. Land grants, by the way, were extensive lands taken from tribes by the government and handed over to railroad companies and universities. The Northern Pacific had the land now, but they still had a problem. Having the land was one thing. Having investors to get this thing moving was another. The hope was that a wondrous wilderness set aside for the American public would move investors to finance the railroad. With the backing of railroad money, Montana explorer-slash-vigilante Nathaniel Pitt Langford began promoting the idea of the park to East Coast politicians and elites. The Northern Pacific had a real interest in anything that could help drive speculation and investment in its region, what ends up becoming called the Wonderland of the American Northwest, It was all Wonderland, both the scenic marvels like Yellowstone, as well as the extractable natural resources, the mines, the timber. In 1872, President Grant established Yellowstone as the country's first national park. And just like the timberlands and the minefields along its route, the Northern Pacific came to control Yellowstone, with a total monopoly on the park's hotels and restaurants. Wilderness has often been seen in America as untouched, devoid of the human. As Yellowstone fell into the hands of the government and the railroad, that idea was made reality by violently expelling the people who had lived in and visited its grounds for thousands of years. That included the Sheep Eaters, a band of Shoshone who lived in Yellowstone year-round. In 1880, Park Superintendent Felitas Norris delivered a regulation that prohibited Native people from traveling in the park at all. Chris says that Indigenous people were simultaneously being removed from the story of the park. You have the popular notion being promulgated in travel accounts and newspaper articles and so on that Native Americans were superstitious of the park. And so they were superstitious people and they just they didn't travel in the park. So, yeah. The proposition that wilderness and westward expansion came from the same impulse starts to seem like less of a contradiction. Wilderness, like mining, was a resource that corporations like the Northern Pacific could profit from. Wilderness was made into a supposedly empty place through genocide, a space where men could relive America's colonial project and feel in touch with the frontier. When we come back, we see Purdy and Webb's wilderness journey from the point of view of their Lakota guides. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. 
Baptiste Garnier, or Little Bat, was born in 1854 to a French-Canadian father and Lakota mother, who both died when he was a child. When he grew up, Little Bat worked as a government scout and interpreter at Fort Laramie and Fort Robinson. In his 1923 book, 50 Years on the Old Frontier, fellow Fort Robinson scout James Cook recalled that Little Bat was considered one of the best big game hunters in the Rocky Mountains. When such well-known civilians as William K. Vanderbilt and Dr. Seward Webb wanted to hunt big game in the Rockies, they usually secured the services of Little Bat for their trips. In the 1896 journal, Purdy isn't always the most deft hunter. September 22nd. Toil all day hunting, but get nothing, but wet and late for supper. That is, until Little Bat joins him. September 29th. Bat and I left the trail and hunted. This time, thanks to Bat's marvelous skill in getting up to game, we were successful. Despite his fame and skills as an outfitter, Little Bat was subject to intense racism. According to Cook, in 1900, Little Bat was shot and killed by a drunken bartender who was acquitted of charges. Cook wrote that his historical legacy was even diminished at his gravesite in Fort Robinson. This simple little marker gives his name, the date of his death, and underneath is chiseled the one word, employee. Arthur Shortbull is a watercolor artist based in Colorado, and he knows something about historical erasure. His great-grandfather was Grant Shortbull, a member of the Oglala Lakota and the other guide on the expedition. It was tricky for me to find Arthur at first. Purdy had only identified Grant as Shortbull in the journal, and when I looked the name up, two men born around 1851 appeared. Grant Shortbull and Arnold Shortbull, a brule man. When I found Arthur's website, he wrote about how these two men had been conflated in the historical record, obliterating both of their identities. I reached out to Arthur by email with a photo from the journal, and he immediately got back to me. This was his great-grandfather. It was the first Arthur had heard of Grant's role in the expedition. Not only that, it was the first time he had seen a clear photograph of Grant as an adult. I found the photograph in a journal all the way in an archive in New Jersey. Stuck in that archive, there was no way for Arthur to have known that his ancestor had been on the expedition at all. This is just one example of how archives have sometimes kept information and objects from indigenous communities without their knowledge. Over the phone, Arthur told me about his frustrating journey trying to gather information about Grant. Growing up... The only thing I ever heard about him was... The story of the accident that claimed his life. But the first story I heard was that it was a car wagon accident. That my great grandfather and his family were in a horse-drawn wagon and were struck by a automobile. And discovered that that was not true. They were in a vehicle when they were struck by another automobile. And he was killed instantly, and my grandfather was also killed. The search for the truth about his ancestor's life wasn't easy. Not only was the story of his death mixed up with hearsay, Arthur began to realize that the historical record wasn't accurate either. Arnold Shortbull's life had too often been mixed up with Grant's. If you did not know the existence of these two men, both named Shortbull, you could easily confuse them both. The sad thing about 
history is that unless you actually do the research yourself, you may find out that the historical record is actually wrong in some things. So Arthur did the research himself. In 1990, he traveled to the National Archives in Kansas City. There he discovered ledgers drawn by the artist Amos Badhart Bull from the 1890s. Plains tribes had, for centuries, recorded their histories by painting them on rock walls and buffalo hides. In the wake of their forced resettlement in the 19th century, Plains communities would use ledger books, the easiest paper to come by at the time, to document life on the reservation. Arthur says that Amos Badhart Bull's ledgers depicted his great-grandfather. Amos Badhart Bull painted and drew 400 different images capturing our Lakota history. I then discovered that both Amos Badhart Bull and my great-grandfather were both scouts for the United States Army at Fort Robinson. Arthur also found interviews between Grant and historians. There was a gentleman by the name of Mikhail Scudder who interviewed Short Bull and discovered that my great-grandfather and his brother, Hedog, had a separate band called the Sorback Band. Gathering all this information, I then was able to start actually documenting exactly who Grant Sorbel really was. A picture of Grant's life began to emerge for Arthur. He had fought in the battles at Rosebud and Little Bighorn in 1876 and surrendered alongside Crazy Horse at the Red Cloud Agency the following year. In 1882, Grant and other members of the Sorback Band were transferred by the U.S. government to the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. By 1890, Grant was serving as a scout for the U.S. Army. As much as Arthur wanted to know his great-grandfather's history, uncovering these stories can be frightening for descendants, too. He described not always being sure what these histories would reveal. For example, Arthur tells me about his relief when he learned that Grant had not stood by at the Wounded Knee Massacre, when nearly 300 Lakota people were murdered by U.S. troops. My great-grandfather was a scout during that time. And at the Wounded Knee Massacre, there were 20 scouts on the south side of the battlefield. And when the first bullet was fired, all 20 scouts had left the field. I did not want to know or discover that my great-grandfather was standing on the hillside as all these people were being uh, slaughtered. And through my research, I discovered that he was actually in Pine Ridge at the time. His great-grandfather had been guarding the town. He wasn't, Arthur discovered, on the wrong side of history. Arthur tells me that even when he hasn't been looking, he's been led to his great-grandfather. He was working as an artist in residence at the Agate Fossil Beds in Nebraska when he happened to visit James Cook's ranch, remember Little Bat's friend, and discovered letters from his great-grandfather to Cook about life in Pine Ridge. Basically, they were just everyday letters stating what they were doing, what was happening on the reservation. Through my life as an artist, I've been led to different people, different places where somehow it's always connected with my great-grandfather. Although he didn't know about the 1896 Yellowstone expedition until I reached out, Arthur said that his great-grandfather's role made sense, given his military position and knowledge of Wyoming's land. As for his own take on Yellowstone? I totally enjoy the animals. I enjoy that because that 
shows me that at one time this country was a beautiful place to be. But at the same time, my entire life I've always had problems with people claiming territory that does not belong to them. In other words, the story of the national park, which has so often been told to us as a symbol of conservation, altruism, and the glory of nature, has significantly different connotations for Arthur. Arthur's struggle for information about Grant was striking to me. He's remained tenacious in getting the truth of his great-grandfather's life right, despite the fact that his family's history had been scattered across archives throughout the country. Despite the fact that his family's history had been buried, while false histories about Yellowstone were being marketed and preserved for generations to come. One good place to see that marketing in action is to examine the photographs taken along the 1896 journey. Yellowstone's official photographer, F.J. Haynes, accompanied the men throughout their trip. Chris tells me that the Northern Pacific wanted Haynes to foreground the tourists' presence in his photographs, to assure potential visitors that Yellowstone was a safe and comfortable destination. And it's true. Throughout Purdy's journal, you can see hotels, trains, and the smooth paths that the Northern Pacific had created. You may be a montage, right, of the geyser basins, which were kind of menacing and alien, looked like a moonscape kind of thing. And then right smack in the middle of the page, you'd have the Fountain Hotel or the, the Grand Canyon Hotel kind of insinuating the human presence and the domestication, assuring would-be travelers to Yellowstone Park that the place was being made into an accommodating touristic environment that was being domesticated. In one image in Purdy's journal depicting the entire hunting group, photographer F.J. Haynes seems to want to show a camaraderie between all the men, with Black Park soldiers, Native Americans, and white men standing and sitting side by side. September 20th. Before starting from the Snake River station, we are marshaled in line and marched past an elevated point where Haynes adjusted his camera. And in the language of one of our guides, the whole damned outfit was took. But the last photograph in the collection has a lot to say, too. A man, maybe Purdy himself, lays down, sleeping in his tent on what looks like a comfortable pillow, his boots laced and his leather luggage beside him. The wilderness is somewhere outside the confines of the cozy tent. Maybe Purdy arranged that photo last for a comedic purpose, to show an audience back home that the group wasn't really roughing it. That impression stayed with me. In 1896, Yellowstone was not a place of untouched, rugged wilderness, nor was it a space that all Americans could access equally. Instead, it was, for the upper-class white tourist, a place of leisure. October 6th. I am among the last to leave camp. As the shadows grow long and the air frosty with approaching night, we pass through the Golden Gate down to Mammoth Hot Springs. A pleasant chat a word of gratitude and farewell to our kindly hosts, and we are off again. A jolly dinner on the car, and then to sleep, for the first time in many days on real beds. October 11th. Train arrives at Shelburne just 30 days from the date of starting, and the trip is ended. To live is a happy remembrance forever. This past summer, Yellowstone celebrated its 150th anniversary. 
As part of those celebrations, the park reached out to Indigenous communities from around the Mountain West in an effort to acknowledge Yellowstone's history of exclusion and to affirm Native people's place in the park's past, present, and future. Taylor Stagner, a reporter for Wyoming Public Radio, documented the anniversary. Taylor is Northern Arapaho and Eastern Shoshone, and she grew up in central Wyoming on the Wind River Reservation. Growing up, she says she didn't feel much connection to Yellowstone. I haven't been there very much, and I think that's because it's expensive to go on vacation to these places, and I think that that's taken for granted, to be honest. And if you have maybe just a handful of like vacation days a year, why would you go to some place that you aren't welcome or you don't feel like you're welcome? Taylor says that sentiment, not feeling welcome, is one she's heard from many Indigenous people she's interviewed. I've heard many people be like, I just don't feel welcome there. I don't feel welcome in Yellowstone. Why would I go there? Why would I go there and be looked down on? Why would I go there and not see signage of like, oh, this place is important to my tribe. Why isn't it being highlighted here? This summer, Taylor says she saw that beginning to change. As part of the anniversary celebrations, the park sponsored Yellowstone Revealed, a week-long display of Indigenous artwork. Indigenous artists from around the Mountain West got together and really put on a show of like, yeah, we're here, we're Indigenous, and we're going to, you know, make a place for ourselves in a place where they've not really felt welcome pretty much since the park's inception. One particular piece by Northern Arapaho artist Patty Harris stood out to her. She put together these buffalo made out of birch branches and and sage, and they become kind of cages. And so inside of these cages were mother-daughter pairs, indigenous mother-daughter pairs. The pairs of mothers and daughters stood inside a horse trailer, the word rematriation on one side and land back on the other. So... They got out of the trailer and they just walked upon the land. From what I saw, it was beautiful. Taylor tells me that the park has plans for a Yellowstone revealed event in 2023. Park officials also say they plan to create an internship position for Native youth. But she adds she will be following closely to see whether the park follows through on these promises. I'm tentatively optimistic about it. You don't want the 150th, a nice round number to come around and all of these photo opportunities come around and government agencies taking that time to be like, yeah, see, we care, and then not making good on the responsibilities that they have to the indigenous people with ties to Yellowstone. Like we're gonna include tribes more like how, how are you going to do that? And how is that going to move forward? Because. I'm I'm not really interested in lip service anymore. Taylor gives me her definition of land back. Land back is about paying respect to the land and being included in the decision making. It's not, oh, it's ours now, get off. It, It would be a lot more about what's best for the land and what happens when we put the land first. What if we put us first because we are part of the land? This perspective of humans as part of the landscape seems worlds away from Purdy's expedition, 
from those conceptions of wilderness as a place to conquer or as a place to escape to. Conceptions that have been recycled time and again in popular books and movies. What would happen if we shifted those views of nature and saw land, and not just the most dramatic landscapes in America, but also our local lands, as part of us? Changing how we imagine land might seem like a small thing, but I don't think it is. I think about how big a role art played in promoting the idea that American wilderness was devoid of people. I think about how many false stories were circulated about Yellowstone, from the campfire tale about the Northern Pacific's altruism to the myth that indigenous people never traveled in the park. And I think about how far-reaching stories about the West's wilderness are, how they live in the minds of people who have never stepped foot there. The truth is, I've never been to Yellowstone. I'm from a beach town in Virginia. But Yellowstone National Park and places like it have lived in my mind since at least 16 years old. That was the year I read Terry Tempest Williams' book, The Hour of Land, a collection of essays inspired by 12 national parks. The first park she visits in the book is the Grand Tetons, right by Yellowstone, a landscape so beautiful and so different from the sandy pine forests I knew at home. I read the book around the time the Malheur occupation took place when a group of far-right militia took over a national wildlife refuge and tried to put it back in the hands of the state. A few things struck me all at once. How much public land existed in the West, hundreds of millions of acres that belonged even to people like me who had never been there, and how precarious the conservation of this land still was. Every student had to deliver a speech my senior year to the whole high school, and I decided to write mine about protecting public lands. I remember quoting Terry Tempest Williams in that speech. She wrote, Our public lands, whether a national park or monument, wildlife refuge, forest, or prairie, make each one of us land rich. It's our inheritance. Our public lands might be an American inheritance, but they're a stolen one, taken from the people who had cared for them for thousands of years. At the time I wrote that speech, I heard wilderness as a story of conservation winning out over development. I understood wilderness as a place to escape, to get lost, to be in touch with something real or something divine. Now, it seems past time to revise the wilderness tale. That was Noah Greenspan. I'm Melody Edwards. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Luke Foring is our digital producer. Thanks also for help from Sarah Ann Leverett and Diane Berner. We'd like to extend our gratitude to Firestone Library, as well as to librarian Gabriel Swift and Professor Martha Sandweiss, who oversaw Noah's research into Purdy's journal. History reenactment was by Gabe Chalik, Louis Aaron, Connor Kim, and Sarah Rive. To hear more history from the perspective of Indigenous tribes, join us in February 2023, when we're going to be rolling out a whole season looking back at the history of the Plains Indian Wars from the point of view of the tribes themselves and how that history is still very raw, yet how tribes are finding incredible ways to heal it. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. 
One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.